Hello, and welcome back to Conversations with the Mind. I'm your host, Shane Lamaster. I want to first start off by um, thanking all of our listeners for their continued listenership. And uh, we want to thank you for continuing to like and share our podcasts and get the message out. Um, with your help, we're reaching more and more people, and our listenership continues to grow. Um, so that's great. That's what we're trying to do here, get this message out. Uh, we also take donations for the podcast. I don't take any personal income, but... Um, it, this is in an effort to get our audio message out to you guys at greater quality. So when I reached the 40 episode mark, um, I made a commitment to myself that I'm going to buy some, some nicer microphones and, and things like that. So we can run the podcast, uh, through my computer instead of on my phone. I think we'll get a lot better quality out to you that way. I, will, I also want to let all you listeners know that we are always sponsored by my, uh, private practice, MindOps. You can find us at mindops.com. That's M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S.com. We're a mobile and eclectic counseling company. Uh, we do one-on-one -on -one sessions, distance sessions. Uh, we can do teletherapy either through video chat or through the phone. Um, and we have a number of specializations. We specialize in individual um, therapy teams, small and large groups, uh, businesses, and um, we, like I said, we have specialties in addictions counseling, general psychotherapy, um, psychedelic integration therapies, um, as well as sport and performance psychology. So if you uh, are in any need of some mental tuning, uh, please visit us at the website. That's also probably the best place for you guys to leave comments for myself or my guest, uh, and I will always forward them on. So on to the good news story of the day. Uh, we, uh, we have an effort to try and get some good news out to you folks uh, at every podcast. Today's article from the Good News Network reads, uh, Patton Oswalt responds to online troll by rallying followers to pay for the guy's medical bills. Uh, if you guys don't know who Patton Oswalt is, he's one of my favorite stand-up comedians. Uh, he's, he's an actor. Um, but some guy, I guess, was, was trolling him on his Twitter account I'm just saying some really nasty stuff. And instead of responding uh, in a retaliatory way, Patton Oswalt kind of looked back through his Twitter feed and found out that this guy was really sick and really dealing with a lot of medical issues. And so instead of, like I said, instead of retaliating um, against the troll, uh, what he did was he set up a donation, donated two grand of his own money. And within 24 hours, that donation page had raised uh, $36,000 for this guy. Um, so afterwards, um, the guy who received the money, who, who had been trolling, um, was really cool because he reported that, you know, his entire perspective on, um, human beings and connection to others and communication, um, and how much of an effect that can have on people. And, and he said he was really humbled by this act. And I was just really inspired by it because I feel like if more people sort of responded to hate or negativity coming coming your way with, with some kindness. Uh, you know, we all deal with negativity coming our way, but if we can deal with it with kindness back to that person, um, I feel like the results can always be much better. So that's our good news story for the day. We have a very special guest with us uh, today. His name is Michael Sullivan. Uh, he owns Fusebox uh, Mixed Martial Arts down in Westminster, Colorado. Michael and I met, uh, must have been uh, close to 15 years ago. That's a long time. Um, and he was my first MMA coach. Uh, we met as I was teaching classes at a Krav Maga school. 
and um, the, the owners of the school decided to bring Michael in to, to spice up the program and start teaching some mixed martial arts uh, theory and philosophy and technique and things like that. So that's how we met. And I trained under Michael and the fuse box banner for um, maybe five years, competed a number of times uh, under, under that for uh, in MMA as well as jujitsu. And then um, when I moved away, you know, I, I switched to our sister gym up at Z's training gym, but Mike and I have always stayed in contact. Uh, he's a big inspiration to me and a big mentor in my life. Um, you know, almost like a father figure, uh, since I, I didn't really have connection with my own father. Um, but, uh, you know, it's kind of cool. We came around full circle and recently, uh, Michael actually wedded my wife and I up in, uh, at the Mishawaka here in Colorado last September. So that was, it was really special to have him do that for us and really brought a lot more meaning to, to the ceremony and the, and the tying of the vows. So, I'm not going to go over Michael's entire bio. Uh, he can do that for you. He's got a, uh, a wealth of knowledge as far as um, uh, history with warrior culture and things like that, as well as a number of different uh, accolades in the martial arts, a number of different black belts in various styles. And I'll just let him uh, kind of give you a background on that. So welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you, Shane. That was an amazing introduction. Appreciate that. Thanks. Um, so the first thing I always ask all my guests when, you, when they come on the show, and uh, I really want to get a sense from you because I, I really value um, your unique perspective to a lot of things. And that question is, you know, what does the phrase conversations with the mind mean to you? Um, the audience knows, you know, that's the name of the podcast and what it means to me, but really want to get a sense of what that, what that uh, phrase means to you and how it resonates. Okay. So I, I was thinking about that a little bit and I guess what it really means to me um, is when I look at, there's a couple of stages in life that people go through. And I think the first one is mimicking. And then uh, the second one is kind of a discovery. And then the third one is a kind of a double down once you figure out what you're trying to do in life. And then the final one is uh, kind of a retirement stage. And so when you're saying something, that is what is what does conversation with the mind mean i guess it depends upon what stage an, ind an individual is in if they're if they're in that stage of mimicry like a child then the conversation with that mind is they're trying to uh, understand how to be not what to be but how to be amongst people and in your 20s and you're trying to figure out what to do for a career and what building you want to die in or, or whatever it is that people look at for a job um, then I, I guess it, it means contemplation what they're trying to fit into into society so for me it has a lot to do with what cultural teachings we've been um, I guess introduced to and that conversation has a lot to do with uh, the way we perceive the world. And that's going to have a lot to do with our individual success. Sure. Can you give some examples of um, how society and culture or the culture that you choose to, to uh, I guess, embrace how that has shaped your own, you know, experience and your own conversation that you have with yourself? Oh, you know, so that, that conversation with myself isn't an easy one. The, I, I know that a lot of people suffer and have pain and struggle in their life. And I've, 
I, I come from a, a very small town where there's this idea of what a man is. And, and you have to look at the, the uh, I guess, the year that this this was occurring back back in those um the the planet hasn't warmed up quite so much and it, it was very very cold and being a man um meant, had a lot to do with agricultural um i guess agricultural tasks that were out in the field because you didn't want to send women out into this if you into the bad weather if you could help it and it was it wasn't that they couldn't handle it, it was just more of a courteous thing and we so I, I developed this, this man is supposed to be able to do anything attitude. And I think the way that it shaped me is it caused me to maybe never quit. Um, I, I don't, I don't think I quit. I don't know that I do everything right, but I at least continue to uh, dredge even when it's difficult. The, uh, the other thing I think it's done is, is probably hurt me quite a bit in, in some degree that I have in, I had this idea of what men were supposed to be and there's really very little place for that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I experienced um, something very similar and I, you know, I've alluded to it in, in previous podcasts, but you know, I grew up, um, I was, I was raised by a single mom, but still my, my peer influences and the messages I would receive from teachers or, um, TV or movies or something was, you know, telling me I needed to be macho and deny, you know, emotion and never cry and never quit and all these things and sort of shaped my idea of what a man was supposed to be, which was, you know, pretty much all, all I had to draw from since I didn't have a father, um, in any of my upbringing, a couple stepdads here and there, a couple coaches here and there that helped, um, but no, really, nobody really took a personal interest in me. So I had to kind of develop it for myself. And what I found was that it served me really well to embrace my masculine side as I was taught or conditioned into, but it also, like you said, held me back. And I'm realizing only now in my mid thirties that, you know, I've been denying an entire half of who I am, which is, you know, my feminine side, we're all feminine and masculine. You're sort of this yin yang that, that works together um, in balance. And I've been unbalanced my entire life, emphasizing only the masculine. So I'm trying to sort of soften my edges, but not give them up because they still serve me, but soften them so that I can welcome in, um, you know, more feeling, more emotion, more connection, um, you know, my softer sides. And I find that I, when I find that balance, it, uh, I don't know, it warms me up a little bit more. It's not as cold as the, as the hard, sharp edge of, of masculinity. So I, I've had this conversation a few times in the recent in the recent past talking about masculinity and what that means because we're hearing that term now, that toxic masculinity. The I, I can return the phrase toxic femininity. Completely. When we look at eighty percent of the divorce um applications or the applications to get a divorce in the courts in the court system are female. Um, the the amount of assaults that occur are are pretty square across the board between men and women inside of domestic disturbances. It just men hit harder, so it makes a bigger makes a bigger dent. The um, the amount of it, almost everybody paying child support is male. 
they, I mean, there's, there's, there's this run on, run on, run on and this. I, I don't think all women are bad. And I think that there needs to be a conversation on balance that also all men are not bad. And the idea of masculinity being toxic, I, I think what they're talking about is they're taking the extreme fringe of men, the extreme end that guy that can't stop spitting all over the street and cussing and, um, it picks fights at bars. It has a complete, we're talking a lack of culture. That's not masculinity because we, we, we know we've all met women that do that stuff. Sure. So it's, it's not masculinity that the issue is in a lot of cases, it's culture. So we're, we're not by saying that, Hey, boys and girls, you're the same. I think what's happened is they're not saying, Hey boys, here's how you, here's how you act. Here's how you, treat people and it's just an act of virtue it, women can open their own doors the doors aren't heavy anymore but it's just an act of virtue it's an act of kindness it's a it's a it's an everyday ceremony that's being removed and it's putting everybody on an even playing field and it's kind of crappy in my opinion yeah well i see i certainly see you know with the with the newer generations a lot less um I guess, overt masculinity, uh, definitely, you know, that's influenced by social media and how, you know, if we say one, one thing that goes against, you know, even, you know, party lines and gender lines, then, you know, someone can lose their entire career over something, you know, uh, Roseanne got kicked off her show for just saying something just mildly racial. And it wasn't even, you know, it wasn't even uh, racist. So people are taking these things pretty seriously. gym they said this person said this and this and i said hey you know give people a break sometimes people say things and they don't they don't mean anything by it and you may have had this entire freaking loaded history with this comment but it may have been just something that the first thing that they could just pull out trying to get a word in edgeway i don't know what the cause was but if you look at ozzy osbourne's daughter i remember her name she was relatively meaningless to me on the scale of everything but hardcore swinging liberal and then tells on the view donald trump because donald trump if you stop the Im all the immigrants the mexicans from coming in who's going to clean your toilets and it was just the end of her <laughs> and yeah. I, you know I, I get what she's saying that toilet cleaning is probably an entry-level job and if you're moving into a country where you don't speak the language you're you're probably not moving into a ceo position so i i get that and i understand what she was trying to say is that americans don't want to take on that level of entry-level position uh, they all we all feel like we're above it yeah and yeah so words can get out of control right they can just they can just be taken out of control way out of context yeah, for sure. So if masculinity isn't the issue, and I agree with you, I don't think masculinity itself is, is the issue, nor is um, fem femininity, but it sounds more like the, the real issue is maybe a lack of teaching or instruction in morality and values, you know, that people are coming up and like you, the guy you were describing spitting on the street and cussing and, you know, cutting people off and not having any manner. All right, we got you back. I'm back. All right, no worries. Um, so yeah, I was I was just talking about how 
you know, if, ta- if max- masculinity is not the issue, then perhaps maybe it's just a lack of teaching of uh, morality and values by the people who should be doing it, which are parents and educators and things like that, mostly parents, uh, instead of just sitting them down in front of the TV and or parents just letting the, the teachers in the TV teach their kids the values. Yeah, maybe a little bit. So one of my students had had a definition of toxic masculinity his behavior on his motorcycle he said if you if you look at and i know that women can drive crazy too and and i've witnessed this throughout my life a lot but if you look at the majority of people that gun it between street lights it's probably guys right sure and why do we do that I don't, I mean, I don't do that. I learned how to drive from my grandfather and it's kind of reflective, but why do we do that? And that I think would be the part of masculinity that doesn't really serve anything in society. Like why, why take everybody's life at risk to get to the streetlight? And that's, that kind of stuff creates a problem. But I think that gets back into the grooming. There is, there is a lack of priority. In, in our cult, there's a lack of culture in our culture. Yeah. And people say that, you know, this, this has always been like a melting pot of different cultures and that the U S is the most cultured place because of all these different cultures. But as the decades go on and things start bleeding into each other, this melting pot just starts to lose, you know, those, those specific traditions that, that were, you know, individually brought by each culture in the first place. Right. And it, and it may have been that those, uh, I don't know, it may have been that the, the good old days made it maybe didn't even exist. It's just romanticizing something that doesn't exist now. But um, creating a culture is something that I, I think needs to be done. And we, we may have to look backwards. I'm not a big fan of people saying, hey, I have this idea and i want to impose it upon the world and then we'll see if it works. and if it doesn't then you know you guys will suffer so i like the idea of looking back and saying hey what worked for 300 years and why did it work and can we can recreate something like that again and uh i think that maybe leaks a little bit into what you had introduced with me about modern warriorism because that's that's how I'm at least trying to approach this with people when I'm working with them is doing it through the ceremony of ancient warriors in the context of modern society's limitations. Yeah, for sure. With the, you know, with martial arts. Yeah, I, I can see that. So, so looking back at, you know, and you and I both studied a lot of different warrior cultures and history, but looking back, like you said, at, at history and finding out, you know, what worked in these different cultures, especially cultures that, that had more of a defined like warrior class, almost that, uh, some of these societies functioned better in some ways, and some of them functioned worse in some ways, but, um, it was certainly different. And I know you and I really hold hold that piece of history and piece of ourselves, piece of our DNA, whatever it is, that piece of uh, the modern warrior spirit in such high regard that, you know, it's sometimes it's difficult for me to see 
um, you know, I have this ideal version of warriorship and, and stuff from the past samurai and, and Spartans and things like that. And then I look around, even in a lot of the martial arts schools in present day, I look around and it's like, what, what has happened? Like these things are watered down. These things are ineffective. You're teaching, um, bad morals and values and, and discipline behind the, the joke martial art. And that's what I think really drew me to you in the first place is that, you know, when we first started at the craft school, um, it was, it was no nonsense. You know, you, you were like, I'm going to show you, um, effective techniques from a variety of different martial arts. And we're going to leave all the trash at the door and we're just going to learn what works. And I really value that. Yeah. yeah so there's in, in the context of the martial arts. And if we, if we break this off real quick and just say, all right, on the martial arts, what, what equals trash? Cause that's something I want to, um, I, I think it's really important to, to address there was a group of relatively well-known martial artists here in town that were just smashing this guy some years ago on the internet because he said he was a black belt in taijutsu at a like a vitamin cottage in Greeley or something and one of uh one of the martial artists um, from a local gym who I, i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say their name but um they uh they're just the whole it was like this pack mentality of just white trash behavior jumping online and just like oh this guy's an effing idiot man tai jitsu there's no such thing as being a tai boxing jujitsu black belt and they're and they're going crazy and finally the the dude's explained himself and so i chimed in and said hey guys Taijutsu is a term from the 16th century in japan that summarizes general martial arts and it's a legitimate black belt it's it's been there well before 1993 when the tv took over and then the ufc took over and then nothing exists outside of the two styles that were doing pretty good and 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 people just can't seem to break out of this what they see on tv or what they see on social media and then that becomes their new culture and that's why i think our country has no culture is it just keeps changing because of the popular information now i'm not going to try to run all over your podcast here, but I'm, I'm trying to keep a stream of thought. So don't forget the, uh, the junk in the martial arts, the stuff that wasn't working in the cage. Let's say you have this crazy um, wild, like scorpion hand looking stance and like, well, that's stupid. And people, they, they bash all over it. And so I said, Hey guys, I want you to calm down when you're, when you're bagging on this martial arts. And, and I want you to picture 20,000 guys doing that in a line. Now their front hand, that's just making a fist right now. I want you to put a shield in it. So now, now the backhand that's shaped like a scorpion over their head that's doing just a nothing um, has a fist in it. I want you to put a club in it or a sword or, or something of that nature, or a spear, probably, since it would be frontline infantry movement. I think what happened in the martial arts is a lot of these martial artists, the further you go back, were like the standing ready reserve of the military. Are you with me so far? Yeah. Okay, so maybe they're hanging out in their front yard in the 14th century, just going through these movements. And the reason they're in kata form, for example, is because the whole garrison has to move at the same time. Now the world's just covered in horse crap and mud. There's no pavement. So everybody needs to move at the same time or you're going to slip and, and falling in mud. And I'm sure we've all lost a shoe in mud. The, the whole idea of fighting in the world prior to pavements is very complex. So, what I think happened is guns and gunpowder came into place and then 
all of a sudden um, they stopped doing that stuff in the front yard because now they're using guns. Well, their grandkids, for example, in this story that I'm telling you, maybe watched it. He goes, well, this is what grandpa used to do. And they just, without understanding exactly why grandpa used to do it, because he wasn't allowed to take the shield and the sword out of the armory, he, he just ended up teaching it to the next person. That this is what you do. So I think there's a lot of gaps in the history of the martial arts. I mean, if we have gaps in history in our public school system, I guarantee it that somebody's gapping information in your karate school. Yeah, for sure. I read a great book um, called The Lies My Teacher Taught Me, and it's all about, you know, ripping apart the at least the Western um, system of teaching history and you know, history really is written by the victors and we miss out on like 80% of what really happened. Um, but going back to, you know, this idea of the modern warrior, you know, when I, when I envision, you know, the best warrior cultures in my mind, it was just a part of their life. It was a part of their day and the entire culture respected the idea of the warrior as, you know, a, a class, um, you know, the Spartans would train not, you know, all the time, all day long. That's what they did. And, you know, I feel like a lot of those uh, values, whether it be, you know, mental toughness or, or uh, perseverance or, you know, going through hard challenges, physical challenges like that every day is sort of lost on current generations uh, to a larger extent than it was before. And that's where I see uh, more of the decline of like this, the, you know, the, what the, what it really means to be a warrior. And, you know, I'm not, I'm also, you know, I consider myself a spiritual warrior too. So I do, you know, I acknowledge that there are other ways to embrace warriorship, whether that's, you know, being a warrior in your family life or being a warrior in academics or being a warrior, uh, you know, spiritually, but the, the physical um, piece, what most people regard as a warrior um, has changed so significantly. Um, and I don't know if we're ever going to be able to go back to a time when, when there can be like an honorable warrior class that, that people do, um, you know, regard highly. I, I don't, I don't think so. I, it, my personal belief on what caused that was a lack of a unifiable social economic structure. The, people were fighting for land back then they were fighting for resources and the reason the vikings in in, in a short tail went away is it became easier for the saxons to say oh here comes the vikings just let's go down to the beach and give them like 300 gold coins or silver coins and then pay them to go away and so that group of 17 year old boys jumps back on the ship and goes back to norway and they're like hey those guys are giving away money and you take the boat, man, just, just go. And so it, it actually became easier for the Vikings to get paid off in if, and it softened their generation from my understanding, it softened enough of them to where they, they just like today, they just became soft. Yeah. And that's why when you hear the word Danes, it doesn't strike fear into your head. I, I think of them as incredibly soft people now. But in the time of Brian Boru and Kuchulain, I, I'm sure that these were a very much different monster of, of people because there was no unified 
mint printing silver coins and the, the money didn't exist to pay these people off. And so they were just smashing anything to take that kind of wealth because wealth didn't exist, but the concept did. Mm -hmm. What about in the case of like the samurai who, uh, you know, were one of the most highly regarded classes in the social hierarchy? So, yeah, so they were born into it just like European um, Europeans were. Right. And, and there was a low class of samurai like Miyamoto Masashi originally was. So Miyamoto Masashi takes off at, at age 13, gets away from his abusive father, goes out, um, teaches himself the martial arts, is self-taught. So that's something I want people to, to hear today. And everybody says, you have to have an instructor teach you everything. Well, Miyamoto Masashi, one of the greatest samurai that we know of was self-taught, man. Just by, just by watching other people, duplicating it, and then picking fights, going to jail, getting in trouble, and putting himself in the harshest situations he could until he jumped into a battle. He jumped in. Hey, we got you back? Got me. All right, cool. Um, so, yeah, what I was saying about Musashi and why he's one of my favorite uh, warriors in history is he wasn't just, you know, tough and, and very technical with his physical skills, but he really embraced the mental side of warfare and really, you know, messed with his, his, uh, his opponent's heads. And I remember hearing a story of, like you said, he, he would pick a fight with this samurai and told him, you know, meet me on the beach at, you know, 1 PM for this battle. And so the guy's there and Musashi just, you know, he's still, you know, out at the bars drinking or whatever. And, you know, it, he ends up showing up at like four or 5 PM many hours later. And by this time his opponent is super frustrated and Musashi is able to get the, uh, the upper hand because he's not emotional about it. And, um, you know, the other guy was playing off of anger. So I really like that aspect. That's part of what got me into psychology and combining psych, you know, psychology and my knowledge of that psychology with martial arts is, is really playing that mental side of, of any sort of, like, I thought that was really cool. Good. Um, you know what Masashi also said was that the loyalty of the samurai blew any direction like the wind based upon, from my understanding, what he's saying, money. Yeah, whoever's paying him. That's right. Who he's working for. Yeah, so, so, I think, so I think that's it. I think that's our species in a nutshell. And I think that we're going to move. So when we're talking about is there going to be an honorable warrior class again? I, well, if, if the economy or if our economy prototype stays like it is right now, <clears throat> if the machine stays exactly like it is now, no, I don't think so. But uh, if there was a massive breakdown like into the world, meteor hitters, that maybe, maybe something would come of it in time. Uh, maybe somebody would make a night division or something. Uh, it would be outside of gone. But the uh, I, I don't know that anybody was as honorable as we think they were. Because when I think about the Vikings, and I'm, and I'm tied to them as my family comes from County Cork, Ireland, and we, we were a Viking hub. They, uh, I mean, they were, <laughs> if they were doing that today, they'd be terrorists. Yeah, absolutely. And so maybe what people are talking about is it's, it's a pretty good chance that if you run into that line of dudes, you're going to die, but he does it anyway. That kind of valor is pretty rare. Sure. 
Well, and we were talking about, you know, just the change over long periods of time, uh, you know, and the dying out of warrior values and the warrior class. But, you know, even since you were a youth, when you started martial arts, and I remember a couple of stories you would tell me from your youth back in high school or something. I think you said you had long hair back then. Um, <laughs> but even, even since then, you know, and it hasn't even been that long. Um, even since then, from the stories you tell me, compared to what I've seen and, and people come and go from martial arts gyms. And, um, it's much different. It's, it's a much different, uh, culture, you know, even, even back to, you know, the days of the karate kid movies, you know, when karate was cool and Bruce Lee and people would, would venerate people who would practice, uh, would be practitioners. And, um, you know, today it's almost like, you know, if I tell someone I'm a martial artist, I have a 50, 50 chance of them saying, Oh, that's, that's cool. and being interested or the other 50% of their chance. And they just look at me like, Oh, you're a heathen. Like, haven't you, haven't you evolved past that yet? Yeah. The, the don't, don't, the don't hit me comments that come with people finding out. I, I don't even tell people. Really? No, I don't, I don't tell people that I don't know. Um, I, I let them, if, if contact, I'm a woodworker and people look at me cross-eyed. What do you mean? I'm like, well, I don't know. I make doors, windows, I, I, things like that. <clears throat> and that, that's usually how I introduce myself. Um, and it's all, my introduction is money-based. I'll kind of feel around a conversation for a moment. And if they're the type that's interested in joining a gym, then I'm a, then I own a gym. And then what, to what degree I'll admit to what I own in a gym depends upon how they react to that. And if I come and be a prospect in my gym, if they're like, Oh, um, if I can get out of them, they're looking for doors or tables or furniture. Well, then I'm a woodworker. And the martial arts was supposed to be something that allowed me to be an expert in the fields of life because I'd, I'd never thought it was going to be something that make me money. That was really, I'd probably hoped it would, but it, it never, maybe I'm just too simple. Um, it never dawned on me that it would ever make me an outstanding living. So it was always to defend what I did. And I don't like who and what I became when I started making a living on it. It, it changed me. How so? it, changed, it brought out ugly. It took, it, it's kind of like when I was a mountain biker, man, I used to love mountain biking. It was this, it was this awesome meditation for me. And then I started racing and it became this kind of suck thing that I had to train. I had to ride so many days out of the week and so many miles in a day. And, and then I had to go out and compete and I had to place within a certain, um, I had to place within a certain number um, from the top in order to get sponsorships or keep them. And it, and it just ruined mountain biking. And same kind of thing happened with the martial arts is it went from this fantastic, like this fantastic place where my imagination could kind of take an artsy turn and be like, Oh, it's amazing that people can do this kind of stuff into this, this world of, kind of nasty cults that had a lot of people into them and they're like oh you don't do my style then you're not you're not good and it 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 just <clears throat> became a battle and i think you were there you were present for a lot of those battles and how much 
um, I mean, I received, I received a lot of heat for not being a BJJ guy. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I mean, you're one of the few um, Sambo pra- practitioners in Colorado at the time when I met you, and still um, one of the few Sambo practitioners, and um, especially at the level that you're at, you know, winning Pan Ams last year, that was freaking awesome. Um, that's, yeah, that's 2017. But I mean, you also do all, all sorts of other crazy stuff, like getting in the ring with full knight's armor and bashing somebody else with a sword and a shield. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty freaking cool. Um, not many people do that kind of stuff. And I like how you said, um, you know, for you, it was about defending, defending your place, but yeah, I did get to see some of that. I saw that, you know, it makes sense once it becomes a job, rather than an outlet for your creative expression, the, t- the, the mood behind the practice morphs and changes and you become something different. You do. And I, I found that people became something different when they lost the martial. And I'm going to put in capital letters art. And they just started doing um, high probability or high percentage movements. And I, I've known a couple of guys. I, I know three guys that do repetitive motion with tie kicks that have either got double hip replacements or are headed to it and are on the list to get double hip replacements for using that same motion of that low kick repetitively over and over and again. And it's so close to your walking stance that it's just grinding off that bit of cartilage. So when I was younger, back in the nineties, I would do, cause I, one of my belts is in Taekwondo and that's through Nam Te Hai out of Colorado Springs and Sanwook and San Kuk Nam were my instructors and they were, they were like super beloved to me. These, these people were amazing to me. And I, I learned to do kicks that turns out were designed to knock people off of horses. They were kind of one of the hail Mary. We're probably all going to die. You might as well give it a shot kicks, but it yeah. remained in the martial art. And what it did was forced me to work a plyometric type of exercise that really isn't delivered in those martial arts and in the martial arts anymore. So I'm, I have healthy hips and people that are a quarter younger than me are getting hip replacements. So the art in it, are all the movements that I do as a martial artist valuable in the fight? No, because I don't, I don't fight all the time. Uh, a lot of them are based in fighting age. That's something that I heard from Scott Gordon, one of my early Kimpo instructors. He goes, the biggest battle we're going to fight is age. Yeah, I'm starting to realize that myself at, at the age of 35. The but age. I've yeah, but I mean, I you've seen me through my entire um, adult martial arts career, and I've had to battle through a lot of different injuries that would have ended other people's um, fight careers or ended their desire to want to train. Yeah, your your knee injury didn't uh, didn't resonate well with me, and because you were in the ring with Vinny Lopez when after you got a surgery and it just exploded again. Yeah, right away. That, that was heartbreaking. Yeah, it was for me too. Um, I just 
gone through what, like a year and a half. And I had that uh, vacuum pump and an internal staph infection and a pick line and still in the gym, trying to train and get through that. And then my own addiction stuff from the depression, not being able to train, you know, it really set me back and you, you got a, you know, firsthand view of all that stuff, but I'm proud to be able to say, you know, I'm one of the few that made a comeback, you know, and I never thought I would amount to, I mean, I always wanted to amount to something in the martial arts, um, but I never thought that, you know, I, someone like me could do that. I didn't face the adversity that, that a lot of champions had to face to get there. Um, but today being, you know, even a professional jujitsu uh, fighter on the, on the pro stage at fight to win, that makes me feel like, you know, all my, all my hard work and all my dreams meant something that, uh, you know, my path is still unfolding in front of me. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to stand up for you just a little bit here because I, I'm going to tell everybody what I experienced with you blowing your leg out. Um, what was the name of that? It was over at DU, um, where you blew your leg out at. Um, with Vinny Lopez. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, that was a ring of fire. Ring of fire. Yeah. Man. Right. And it was over at, it was over at DU. They used to hold the Sabaki over in that gym. Yeah. The Magnus arena. That's right. So I, I stepped in after, cause your knee blew out and the round came to an end. And so I, I went in and you said something's wrong with my knee. And you were acting like you were slipping on ice. And I went in and I grabbed your leg. And I looked at you and you looked right back at me and said, are you, is it over? You're not going to stop me from fighting, are you? It was something like that. And I'm like, yeah, we're done. And you go, but I can do this. I'm like, no, man. And I turned around and looked at the ref and I just said, we're done. But you didn't want to stop. And I, as a coach, just, I couldn't have that. And as, as your friend, and as much as I have known you and watched you grow, I was like, I, I can't watch you get hurt because you don't have a foundation anymore. And uh, your spirit was there. So don't ever doubt that your spirit was there. Yeah. I appreciate that coming from you. And I've, I've been a coach sitting on the side of uh, other fighters, you know, that I've coached, helped develop too. And, you know, the experience from outside the cage watching is almost more nerve wracking than actually being in there. You know, you feel the hits that I'm taking when I, when I can't feel them because my adrenaline's pumping so much, you see me, you know, you see my knee go out in the middle of the ring and, can't necessarily like jump in there and defend a friend, but you have to watch me, like you said, wobble uh, every time I tried to stand up looking like I was, um, you know, skating on ice. Right. Um, and you were doing really good. I, I think that you actually would have won that fight if your knee had been, had remained intact. Because <laughs> you were, you're even fighting pretty well for staying on one leg. And I can, I can tell you in the 2016 Pan American um, Combat Sambo Championship, I, I blew out something in my leg and I thought I broke my leg. I, I mean, the pain was so bad. I thought I broke my femur and then I stood up off of it and I was like, okay, clearly the femur's not broke, but the knee's gone. <laughs> right. And so I tried to fight too. And it took the guy that I was fighting like two seconds to figure out that my 
right knee was the issue. And so his game went there, you know, and he all his buddies on the sideline. There's like 20 of them. They're all pointing at me. Everybody figured it out. And so I just turned around, and stepped off the mat. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not taking your injury is what I was like. No, done. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not doing that. So, um, you had, what, was the, what was the thing that injured your leg in the first place? Um, so, yeah, I do remember. I can actually send you the pictures of it. So, you know, I, I tell this to everybody. I can't be thrown. And so it always surprises me when I get thrown. And when I get thrown, it's usually I got through really good. And that's what happened. And I, I'm always shocked. So I'm under the impression I can't be thrown. And, and uh, so a kid grabs me. I forget that I'm um, fighting in the heavyweight division, which is uh, – um, 220 pounds plus and everybody else is like 260 I'm like 214 and I just can't keep weight on in tropical areas and we're down in South America anyways guy grabs me throws me smashes me to the mat I'm like I'm on the way over so I went ahead and I counter rolled it I hit the mat I hit the mat hard I felt like I was thrown in the parking lot finished rolled him over but see in the process of rolling him over i had jumped over and landed on my foot and i did this again in 2017 when i but i corrected myself so i didn't blow my leg out what i do on some of my counters and we can if you ever are interested put it on your site or anything like that i'm, I'm happy to shoot a, a demo video of it i kind of go over i land on my foot and i do this ballerina like twist underneath the person while they're throwing and then counter throw over that but I forgot he weighed that much and also knew what he was doing. So it took my right foot and smashed it against my right ear. Uh. And, um, and of course, my body didn't like that. So I thought that broke my leg and I was on bottom about to get pinned. And I was like, no way. I'm not going out of this thing being pinned. So I'm just going to go ahead and finish breaking my leg and roll him over. And I did. Boom, rolled him over and got uh, got a pin. And then they stood us back up and that's when I realized that I, I had no stability none it, it was like standing on ice on one leg and uh I just I just couldn't defend myself I couldn't in that moment I couldn't justify at this age with my children which are the world to me taking damage to the point where I can't take care of my kids and my family for my, my, for my athletic career at near 50 years old. Yeah, that's a big thing. And I'm starting to, you know, starting to deal with that battle too. You know, I'm at a point now in my martial arts career where my main objective is not to be the biggest or the toughest or the fastest or, you know, be the next big thing, but I want to be able to do this thing into my eighties. And I want to be able to last that long. I know I'm going to need a couple of knee replacements eventually, but you know, I can do some of these, um, you know, some of these martial arts still. Um, and I hope to into my eighties, you know, as I get different injuries and things, I have to adjust my game and have to learn how to utilize different techniques and, and let go of some techniques that, you know, used to be my favorites, but now I shouldn't be doing because it puts my, my body at too high a risk. So I just adjust my game and I'm finding that, you know, when, when I first got injured and I completely lost 
my sense of self. I lost my identity. I lost who I was and became depressed. What I had to come to find was that I'm so much more than what I thought I was and that I had only, you know, I've been placing my identity in this box and that I can adjust. Um, and that's what I've had to tell myself through these injuries. My knee's never going to be the way it was before it ever got injured the first time, but my knee is uh, whatever knee I have right now. And that's what I deal with. And that's what I work with. That, that's, that's right, man. So in the martial arts, this is, you know, who Riley body Cone is sure. Right. I don't. Okay. Riley body Um, I had him up here for a seminar. He's, um, he's a black belt in jiu-jitsu. He's one of the best uh, samba players in the country. And uh, he's, uh, he's like, he's just super innovative about the way and, and tactical. He's like a, he's a game theory guy. And so Riley Bodycomb said, and I, I was noticing as he's over at my gym coaching and doing some, uh, a seminar, I'm like, we do a lot of the same things. So we developed a lot of the same things. It, he just is better known than me. So he, and he, uh, he, he kind of gets it out there better. But a lot of his top writing game is exactly like mine. But what's interesting is we both kind of agree that what we are as martial artists is based largely upon working around our injuries. Yeah, for sure. And having the, the self-knowledge not to, um, not to force things when, when you feel like you could, because uh, that's usually when more injury happens. Yeah. Yeah, so I, if, if anybody that even cares what I have to say on this, as an aging martial artist, knocking on 50 years old, I'm working uh, with Marcelo Mato, uh, BJJ out of Colorado Springs, and his instructor, and, and forgive me, I forget his instructor's name, but um, I paid for some private training time, and they came to my facility, and his instructor goes, you want to roll? And I was like, well, no, you totally beat me. I get it. That's not, that's not what I'm here for. I want to know why you're old and why everything still works. <laughs> yeah. And, what's your uh, secret? Yeah. What's your secret? And the secret was, was this, he said, every day is rehab, even if you're not hurt. So we're talking prehab. And if you're not acting like you're injured, you're going to get injured. So you have to go in and do the rotator cuff prehab stuff, even if you're not hurt. And you have to go through and work your hips and work your calves and the ankles and the Achilles tendons and your, um, and work into your psoas and your gastric and your, your solace and, and get into all these different muscle groups and warm them up properly and treat them well and rehab them and exercise them properly and when you're injured, and this is the big one, and, and I bet you can relate to this, and if anybody from Z's gym there in uh, Fort Collins is going to be listening, I bet they can relate to this. Stop when you're injured. Just stop. Get better, then come back. You're not going to get worse. Uh, you're you're going you're gonna to think about it a lot when you're gone, and the the plastic brain that we have is going to – form neuro neural pathways and more often than not if a person takes a month off and comes back they can destroy most of the people that have been training for that whole month and that's i think the reason that is is because they're not getting it out of their system so they're thinking about it a lot more yeah that's what i find now you know if i am if i do get injured 
I totally switch gears and go into study mode. So I'll, you know, I'll take more time off to rest and recuperate. Um, but I'll be watching video and I'll be, you know, studying and talking to people about technique more so than if I'm actually healthy and being able to train. So I, I like being able to stretch those mental muscles too. Um, I think that's a, a part of martial arts that is undertaught, uh, you know, using things like video review and, you know, paying attention to your arousal states and your breathing and your mental game and where are your thoughts in the moment? Are you, you know, are you even here in the match? All that stuff is important. I really like what you said about the recovery. Um, yeah, that's something that, you know, in my twenties, I didn't have to do recovery things every night. It might be one day a week. I'd go and stretch in, you know, on the weekend. And now, you know, if I don't foam roll every night, if I don't, you know, apply my CBD topicals, if I don't do, you know, yoga and stretching, um, just to prevent injury, then, you know, I can't even hardly walk in the morning or get out of bed. I, my recovery stuff is, is more important to me than, um, the mat time sometimes, because without the recovery, I can't even make it to the mat. Yeah, I agree. I don't, I don't hit the mat more than really twice a week now. And, uh, Paul Logan with, he used to have Paul Logan. He still probably does Paul Logan's photography. Um, <clears throat> used to do a lot of the, the fight coverage. Anyways, he's, he's my lifting coach and he came in and changed the way I lift. And so I, I lift, let's say arms one day and legs the other day and, and only do it one day a week. And one now it week, but one day as a primary and the second day as a secondary support. So if you're doing chest on one day, obviously your triceps are being engaged too, but secondary. So he has the workout broken up and well, I'm just so used to hitting all these muscle groups three days a week. And he said, okay, two things. One, you're not 21. And two, when do you grow? When you're lifting or, or recovering, you grow recovering. And I, I, I think that taking that time to recover, and I, I don't mean taking the time off of training to go to the bar and drink. And, and I see that happen. And I, I'm a huge anti, for the sake of having a good life alcohol guy, um, alcohol just degrades all your training and it asks your body to release nitrogen and protein. So it's, it isn't what I'm saying. I'm saying recover, eat properly, rest, get into a book, read a couple books per, per month, um, educate yourself on topics of interest. But this is all part of the martial arts should be growth. It shouldn't just be a tournament. It shouldn't just be perpetually in the Peter Pan state of the martial arts of looking for the, to the next tournament. There has to be something more than that. Yeah. And you know, I, I almost feel sad for the people who do spend so long in the martial arts pursuing only medals and trophies and tournaments. And they, you know, they get to the end of that and they get to the end of their physical capabilities in those arenas and they just drop off. They quit. They, they stop doing what they loved their whole life because they haven't found that deeper meaning, you know, the deeper opportunity for spiritual growth, for, you know, mental and emotional growth. You know, I can't tell you how much I've grown emotionally and spiritually just through the practice of the martial arts because of the, the challenges that I face because of the, you know, the, 
the near death mental experiences when you're being choked unconscious and things like that, that you have to endure in order to get where you, where you want to go. Those are the biggest lessons to me. And, you know, you're one of the greatest coaches in, in my mind that, that has told me these, these things that, you know, you can, you can compete and you can win, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're better than anybody out there that you were just better that night on that given Matt on that, you know, at that event. Um, I'm, I'm totally butchering how you told me that, but um, that, that meant a lot when I heard that from you. Yeah, it's, I, I think that's crazy important. So back in the old days when Marine took her first loss, uh, Marine Reardon was one of the ensemble angels out of the gym. She took her first loss with us against Summer Bradshaw. And, and she kind of lost like, cause she was, she was the first Sambo angel to actually lose an MMA fight. And I know that this was hard on the girls walking into this. Um, cause nobody wanted to be the first one to lose. And I can completely empathize with that. But when she lost and she lost by decision, um, and she lost by a decision doing something on purpose, which was, I think, really hard for her to wrap her head around that she was pulling Summer Bradshaw onto her, onto the cage, and the refs perceived that as control for Summer. Um, and Marine kind of fell apart, and I got yelled at by Shannon Sin. She's like, you need to get out of the room, because I, I, I wasn't coping with Marine's reaction well. And so Shannon's like, you know what, Sully, just, you need to go away. And so she walks me out and she goes back in and deals with it. And Marine comes back and, and Marine wanted to know if I was upset with her. And I, and I was like, no, we like, if you had won the match, it wouldn't have made your life and that you'd lost the match and it shouldn't be what your life was made of. Let's just, you know, I'm just happy to, let's just go to the after party and do our thing. You know, let's, let's just continue with life. And, and remember that this is the journey because I'm sitting here talking about Marine Reardon and Summer Bradshaw. Nobody knows what I'm talking about. So it, it didn't matter. Yeah, it didn't matter. But she, you know, she's one of the people that did st stick with the martial arts even after the loss and got back in there eventually. And that, that's a testament to her spirit, too. But, you no, know, she had that nasty knee injury like you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I just saw her post the other day. She's back to training, so that's you know that's really good. And for our listeners who who don't know what Sambo is, um, I think would would you mind sharing with them, you know, from a black belt in Sambo, what Sambo is, and maybe talk about your journey from the beginning of your Sambo career up to now and getting your black belt. And I don't think I've ever heard you tell that story before. Okay, so first and foremost, there. Let's go over. There's no black belts in the international sambo federations um that's so here's here's how a sambas kind of looks at the world you ever had a guy say i'm a i'm a black belt in jujitsu and you're like what's your record and i've never competed you ever heard him you ever heard of that guy yeah. what if a rest what if a wrestler said that i'm an expert wrestler how many matches have you had none yeah that would, would totally negate what you're what the guy just said in the first sentence yes so this is where the belt comes into uh, i'm a bit torn up on a belt i'm a i'm a look and i'm doing quotes with my air quotes here i'm a black belt in taekwondo okay probably not anymore <laughs> i don't think i can do all that anymore um that i can do 
I'm, I'm literally back in the green and yellow belt curriculum personally trying to maintain that much. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, I mean, fluctuating, you know, lost skills, lost um, muscle memory, things like that. Lost flexibility, lost ability. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so I can't even do the stuff that we had to do as a red belt or black. I can't even do it. And so I can't be a black belt anymore. So I was at one time, but, but I'm not anymore. I'm not saying I'm not an expert at it. Um, people come at me every now and then. They're like, you know, Taekwondo sucks and I'll, you know, fight you with my Thai boxing or something. I'm like, sweet. Cause I'm going to crack your liver with what you think doesn't work. And, uh, and you're going to be surprised on, on how well it works. If somebody understands what you're doing and you don't understand what they're doing. So, the uh, the journey for me with Sambo is Sambo perceives like if you're a master of sport in Russia, that's that's a big deal, man. That that means that you went through all the right tournaments, invite onlys, fought the best guys, came out on top, and you receive basically an officer's salary during their socialist time to train Sambo. That's the best, good. right? And so I don't know that they still do that anymore. It may just be more of a, uh, a, a kind of a, a title now, but a, a master of sport martial artist usually is a really good Greco-Roman guy, a really good freestyler, a real good Olympic lifter, a very good judo person that has a qualified black belt and is a master of sport. So that's usually what you're facing. And most of those guys had a, had a, a belt in some hardcore karate system and boxed well too. I mean, it's the Russians just produced a rounded monster. So Sambo being a wrestling type of sport with submissions and a jacket um you're ranked on your like i'm a pan-american heavyweight champion for one year a third place placer for another year um i placed eighth nationally one time it just like i'm all over the board man it depends upon how well i prepared to be there and actually i do better if they just pull me out of the audience and onto the mat so if i don't have time to think about it the uh um, so there is no black belt per se, but there are experts. And so you, you have to split that, that hair in your head and two experts may not see the world with the same curriculum. If that. Yeah, it does. And I, I think it's sort of reticent of, um, you know, what Bruce Lee would say about belts that, you know, belt, what is it? Belts only cover two inches of your body you got to cover the rest of your ass or something or that was one of the gracies that said that that was uh, one of the gracies that said that yeah they said uh, the belt covers two inches of your ass you got to do the rest and so right now everybody's chasing these belts and, I, and i've lost students because like i i just got to get my belt in jiu-jitsu like well i can't help you i'm i uh i personally haven't tested out of anything past my purple because it these people are in business they want money and, and I did the work. I just don't want to pay it. <laughs> and it doesn't come in. It just doesn't get any deeper than that. Yeah. They have turned the, the belting and the testing into a business. Um, that's another reason why I like Z's. And if anybody's out there listening and wants to train, come train with us at Z's and you don't those uh, belting. 
consulting fees. All that's included in your membership. Yeah, he's a good school. Um, Brian's a good guy. I like him. I, I grappled him one time, and um, he's 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 a little bigger than me, and yeah, cra- crazy flexible. Crazy. <laughs> Who's that flexible? So, it, yeah, he's strong, knows what he's doing. Um, nothing but respect. <clears throat> I, I grappled him twice today and uh, felt like I did pretty good. That's We had this little um, team building exercise a couple weeks ago in the gym. And um, part of it was, um, you know, at the end, I told the group of, you know, there was like 20 or 15 um, jujitsu people there. And I, I told them, you know, we're going around like, what's your, what's your goal, um, for the, for the month. And I said, or for the year. And I said, I'm going to, I'm going to tap Z this year. That's my goal. Good luck. Yeah, I know. I'm working on it. <laughs> okay. So back to the, so yeah. What... Yeah. So we got what, it, what is the Sambo thing? Um, Sambo is basically if somebody asks you, and the, and the Russian government kind of wanted to, they got sick of people saying this style's the best, this style's the best. Uh, they said, all right, so how do you fight? And I, I've seen people go, well, you do it like this. And I'm like, well, okay, what if there's, what if you're in three feet of water? How do you fight? You can't jump guard now because you get drowned. So how do you fight? And how do you fight in any condition that, that humans can be on? How do you fight? And, uh, and that's, that's an important question. So if it's, if it's, if, let me tell you, man, if you're on concrete, it's, it's judo and boxing. <laughs> that's what it is. Um, it's, uh, ensemble is all these things. It's, it's a mixture of judo and it's a mixture of, uh, boxing and kickboxing. And it doesn't have to be the stuff that you see on the internet from the 1960s with their kicks. So they, they didn't have as much information back then. Um, we have more now. We have an internet now. You know, like, come on, guys, don't be arrogant. Uh, you didn't invent the internet. We just have more information. So, Sambo's evolving, just like jujitsu is. And Sambo's starting to suck up jujitsu, just like jujitsu used to suck up Sambo. And what do you mean, suck up? Uh, you know, absorb. Oh, absorb uh, relevant techniques, things yeah. like that. So, because when I when I go out to compete on an international level, some would say this guy's a black belt in jujitsu. I'm like, cool. So I'm going to try not to get caught in something embarrassing. That that's literally what I think. Like I don't want to get caught in like a bow and arrow. That'd just be the worst for me is a bow and arrow. And I like that's not where I want to go. So, but when they say, all right, this guy's a master of sport, I'm like, shoot. So I'm getting on my phone and I'm checking to make sure I have enough health insurance coverage. <laughs> because it's it's a different approach for both of these guys and uh the samble guy tends to say well the peg doesn't fit in the hole so i need a bigger hammer and uh if your knee's locked out on a throw and and you're getting pulled you're getting pulled the knee's getting broken for sure and so it's the injuries tend to be real thorough inside a samble but it's it's an urgent fight game it's if you don't have, they're not going to give you more than 20, 30 seconds on the ground to fight. And that kind of boggles some jujitsu practitioners. And they say, well, let's back off and look at this from a self-defense perspective. What does somebody's friends look like? And if you're on the ground wrapping this guy up in something and 20 seconds later, his buddy runs over with a brick and you can't get up, that can kill you. 
And so that's kind of what Sambo was designed around is they realized that somewhere between 20 and 30 seconds is where everybody seems to run out of gas in a life and death situation with that saving private Ryan shoved the knife through your heart fight with that Nazi in that top bedroom in that, that, that terrible scene that they had in that movie. So you're, you yeah. just run out of gas terribly fast or their friend shows up. So you have to be in a situation where you can get the better cover. And so the whole martial art of Sambo was based upon how do we get our soldiers out of danger into a better weapon? Yeah. I really liked that. Um, you know, you used to teach us, you know, we would, we would do drills where we'd fight multiple opponents, um, you know, get to the ground and then we have to do something within, you know, 10, 15 seconds and then get up and start another confrontation or using, you know, someone as a body shield in between other attackers. And that's something that's really missing from, um, jujitsu as it's being taught today is, you know, that situational awareness, awareness of other people. And that's something that I really valued that you drilled into us is, you know, I remember your talks about, you know, what are you going to do if you're standing on loose gravel and you can't throw a high, um, you know, a high teep kick or a, or a kick to the face because you're going to slide out from under you. How are you going to adjust your game? Thinking about what you're standing on, thinking about what clothing you're in, thinking about, you know, this person might have a weapon and I don't even see it on them. And, you know, how many people are around and all these elements that um, I think are missed when there's a um, primary focus on the sport aspects of martial arts rather than, you know, the street, um, you know, where these things were, were meant to be uh, used for self-defense. So I see a big, a big gap there, like you were describing. You know, that when I was in uh, Columbia, I was watching the Sambo game take place and I said, this is stupid. And I was like, man, I feel bad for saying that these are, this is a stupid game. But then it's like, oh, I think jiu-jitsu is stupid too when I go to the regular tournaments. I think it's stupid also. And then I, But I think boxing is kind of dumb. And then I think kickboxing and then MMA is kind of dumb. And then it's like, what, what don't I think is dumb? And I was like, well, wrestling. Wrestling's not dumb. And I go, well, why don't I think wrestling's stupid? They're wearing onesies and they're, they're on the mat. And, well, because they're children. Like, yeah, I don't, you know, make fun of children for trying to do good things. So, but the rest of it, and I had to break down the word dumb. Why do I think it's dumb? Because it's a fraction, a fragment of combat is what these are. Jiu-jitsu and Sambo are just two different fractions of the same combat. And they're saying, um, the person that designed each one is like, here's kind of how I would do it. Right. And so, and then all these disciples jump on board and they go, this is how I do it. And then they start looking at each other going, you're dumb because you don't do it the way I do it. There's a, I'm going to give a kind of a plug. There's a Instagram site out there called fake black belts. And I, and I am part of it. And um, I, I look at it and I watch them just make fun of these, you know, some guys are asking for it and, and some guys are just black belts and systems that are a product of the sixties and people just wanted magic mysticism from the East and stuff in the sixties and their martial arts. And so, a lot of hokey stuff got created and it is still being kind of barely dwindled on. There's like 14 people in a ballroom learning this, this stuff. And uh, I'm, I'm listening to them talk about how fake these black belts are. And I, and I chimed in and I said, you know, in 20 years, we're going to look back because we all know we're real black belts today in a martial arts style that doesn't know how to punch or kick or do takedowns and requires to get people to the ground before it even works. 
something's going wrong. Yeah. That means that we're playing a game because now jujitsu, I think it's starting to change. Like some of the guys are getting better at takedowns, but for a very long period of time, everybody just walking out and sitting down. And yes, I agree. It's hard to get past the guy that sits down. It's legitimate. But as soon as he sits down, he gave up and minus. So I just leave. <laughs> he quit. I'm telling you, sitting down is cowardism. And I know this because that's what I do when I get scared. <laughs> You know, it's like I go up against somebody that's really good in Greco and he grabs me. And I'm like, oh, I sit down so I don't have to get thrown. Um, and I don't have respect for myself when I do that. And I don't really have respect for anybody else when they do that unless they're injured. Then it's tactic. Yeah. I was just going to ask you, like, if, if they have like a broken foot or something, you're not going to expect them to still try and hit a takedown. You can have them start on the ground and still find advantageous positions right. from the now, ground. I techniques yeah and if we're gonna say jujitsu had uh, one of my instructors and I, I lost a ton of respect for him when he said this he goes jujitsu is the most useful martial art in the world I'm like well that's like saying boxing is the most useful martial arts in the world it's that's nonsense the human brain is the tool right that's that's the weapon the rest of this stuff is yes just, for sure. They're just pockets in your bat belt. Yeah. Consciousness is the real weapon and mastery over one's own consciousness can, you know, in my opinion, lead to eventual mastery over other people's consciousness in that sort of combat scenario. Yes. And I, I don't like fantasy in the martial arts anymore. And that's kind of one of the reasons I, Sambo to me, the reason, you know, the reason I do Sambo and not jujitsu is, well, a, I started there and um, B, everybody already does jujitsu. So just, just, yeah. so how did you get started in Sambo? That was 93 in Glendive, Montana. Kid comes to me, says, I'm going to do a Sambo tournament. Will you help me get ready for it? And I was like, yeah, let's get, so, uh, we, we kind of started working on it and I was kind of introduced to it at, at that point. And I, uh, I, I didn't really know much about it. I was just a martial artist with a judo background and a wrestling background. And so I trained him up for a few weeks and he went in and won. And it was up in Dickinson, North Dakota or something like that, where that tournament was. And uh, so he went out and won that thing, came back. And, and then uh, I moved to Colorado shortly after and I went to a place called Champions Gym. And I went in there and Dave Ruiz was teaching jujitsu and Brad Gum was one of his students there. And, uh, we had some other Brazilian coaches that were in there, but we had Russians in there too. And we had one of the air forces, old judo coaches. And I just clicked with the Russians and the old judo coach better than I did with Dave. Um, I like Dave. I got along with Dave just fine. Um, it just, I didn't understand all the sitting down. I couldn't wrap my head around it. And so I just did what I already did which in wrestling in nature. And um, I went out and I fought a lot back in the lone wolf days and did a lot of tournaments and grappled. And I got choked out in this thing that was, I kept passing out and I couldn't figure out what it was. Nobody told me what a triangle was. Um, it, Cause I would, <laughs> I would do these like these double legs. I'm like, got you bitch. You know? And then I would wake up and his hands being, I'm like, what happened? I told 
<laughs> I, I was dominating and then now I'm sleeping. And so finally somebody explained to me what a triangle was and um, then began the journey of saying, all right, so I need to mix jujitsu into my game because um, I'm able, I was able to smash over these people as long as they didn't have a wrestling background. And, but they, they in the end would inevitably after taking all my damage kind of catch me in something that would either tap me or put me to sleep. Okay. So for you, Sambo started out as um, an amalgamation of things that you were already somewhat proficient at, but finding a different sort of a different style or a different approach from the Russians and how to train and how to uh, apply what you already knew. Yeah. So it was a sense of opportunity as well. So one of my old instructors, John, he, uh, he wasn't really an instructor of mine, but he, he owned a group here in town that would bring these Russians in from Russia. And it, it just, it was just a happenstance thing. I was teaching some martial arts over at um, world's gym or yeah, world's gym in Aurora, Colorado. And John heard about me. He came in to check it out and he goes, Hey, so here's the deal. We're bringing over these Russian coaches. We all are attorneys and whatnot and have special jobs. You're kind of a loser. So would you be interested in just learning what these Russian coaches teach and then teaching it to us after you got it figured out? And I, I was like, yeah, so I'll take that opportunity and pay anything. And in, I learned a lot of sambo in those years by these russian judo and sambo coaches coming in and uh, black belt karate guys coming in and giving me the system and then really guys if you just if you want to if you want to fight sambo sambo is a series of rules so is jiu-jitsu you can go on a jiu-jitsu tournament and win without submitting anybody and win by avoiding sub and getting the takedown and holding a position. Do you agree? Yeah. Right. So you don't have to know jujitsu to win jujitsu and you don't have to know Sambo to win Sambo. If you walk out and you throw a person onto their back and pin them for 30 seconds, the match is over. When we're talking about Sambo, we're talking about game theory. When we're talking about judo or we're talking game theory, jujitsu, we're talking game theory. Um, can you, do you know enough? What, what you know, can you use it inside of game theory to win by points? Since nobody's dying, which would be the ultimate test. Like only one of you gets to leave, guys. Sorry. Yeah. That would change it. Yeah, I, th I think um, what you're describing here in a microcosm of martial arts can be applied to life in general, you know, game theory as a way to approach life. You know, we're, we have to play this game within a certain set of cultural rules or social rules. And the person who plays the game the best oftentimes comes out most successful, even though they're not the most talented or the most skilled or the most deserving but these people come out because they're, you know, they're willing to um, bend the rules or skirt the rules or, you know, maybe master the rules more than more than people, other people do. It's I think that's an important thing. I used to I used to get stomped out in tournaments a lot because I would go out and try to win on virtue and or and I'm going to take the hard route every match. And then at some point I was just like, all right. Really? I I don't train well and I and I stay in this
Gabe. I don't know why I do this, but I do. And so I'm like, if I'm going to go out and do this, I have to do it like with a ton of energy conservation. So walk. And I have to know what I'm good at. So I'm going to, I'm going to reveal the secret if anybody wants to know. I'm good at like four things. And if, if I pin you with any of those four things, that that's my goal. And if I'm not good enough with those four things, I'm just not good enough. Okay. And that's it in a nutshell. I, I don't go any deeper than that because I find I start taking on injuries when I, when I alter from that. Uh-huh. When you get a little creative. Yeah. And take more risk because we're men and we're masculine and we take those stupid risks when we shouldn't. Right. Back, back it off, man. So when I fight, I, I'm like, all right, this is basically like me fighting a bear. I've got, I've got to be pretty conservative about the way I'm moving. <laughs> you know, I don't want to, I don't want to get tired. Yeah, absolutely. And you and I have had this discussion too about, you know, endurance specifically, you know, when you and I have, have trained in the past and how endurance has become a factor in our own matches. And, um, I find that to be another fascinating element of, of the martial arts that I think is not uh, emphasized also is, you know, um, not only mental endurance, but physical cardiovascular endurance, these types of things too, especially for real life scenario too. I mean, if, if on the street, you have to defend yourself against three different guys, you better be able to, to last full out for, you know, in a minute and a half to two minutes. Um, uh, and that's if you're really skilled and you've been drilling like at Z's, we drill, um, 30 minute tap or 30 second tap drills where we only have 30 seconds to get uh, submission. And after that, if you don't get it, you lose. Um, so we get really proficient at seeking, uh, and intentionally finding submissions within that 30 second, uh, time period. I so think that's, really that's Sambo. Aha. Uh -huh. Yeah. Okay. So the rest of jiu-jitsu is the other spectrum, the five minutes to win a match, right? You'd be on the ground in the same position for the whole time. There's no real stalling, right? Right. Um, in life, in reality, there's, you, you wouldn't want to do that. So that's just the difference in opinions on the martial arts between Sambo and jiu-jitsu. That's, that's all. That's, that's it. And I, want, uh, I wanted to put out one more endurance as an emotional endurance. If you have three people swinging a gate, at you, you know, in, in a fight on the street and you ended up in a bad situation. It's if you don't know how to emotionally handle the void look in people's eyes when they're swinging it, where I, I don't know if they want to kill you, but you can tell they're not thinking cognizantly clear enough to weigh the consequences at the moment. The uh, it's, it's pretty disturbing and it's too late to learn how to And then how do you do all this drunk? Because your endurance is cut in half, I bet, if you're out drinking. Sure. Then how do you handle the legal ramifications if you do it well? There's, there, there's a lot to this, which comes right back to that topic of character that we were talking about in the beginning on what does it take to be a man today and understanding that Vikings back in the old day may have gotten an axe fight and people were like, Oh, that was a wonderful axe fight, but those days are gone. And we live in a country that jails you for everything, anything. 
so you can ruin yeah. ruin your life literally by being preemptive or a little little jumpy with this stuff so you have to as a man get that energy out on that jujitsu or samba or judo floor boxing ring whatever and then be a gentleman out there in that bar and i hope you never have to use it i hope that you understand that you can probably if you're a jujitsu practitioner you could probably be almost everybody who isn't uh, who doesn't train provided they don't hit you in a way that you've never been hit before if you're ditching striking training that's going to be a rough that's going to be a rough lesson yeah i think that's probably the biggest lesson to be learned from the martial arts is the lesson of discernment the lesson of knowing when and where to engage and when and where to avoid engaging um I think is, is probably one of the biggest lessons. Like when you're describing people coming at you, swinging things and, you know, they have a blank look in their eyes. Most people don't know if you are a martial artist and you have people doing that to you. Most people don't know, you know, who they're, who they're attacking or that they're putting themselves in danger by picking a fight with someone who has much greater knowledge and skill than them. So it's up to us as martial artists to discern that in the moment and use the minimal minimal force necessary to subdue uh, and get away. Even you know, I don't even drink anymore. Thank goodness, I've been sober almost ten years. And you know, I would go. You know, I still go meet people out at the bars for birthdays and things like that. And if someone is starting shit or talking, you know, or or you know, disrespecting me or whatever, I have to be able to be self disciplined enough to walk away. And let them think that they took that victory from me, um, you know, knowing that that uh, that it was it was my victory because I walked away. Um, that's that's the biggest one of the biggest lessons I've learned from martial arts, and it's lost on some people too. You and I have seen people come into fuse box over the years, and uh, you know, great fighters, great success in the ring, but then they'll also go out to the bars and they'll pick fights with people, and they. They won't leave it all out on the mat and um, they have to go prove themselves in, in these other venues too, getting themselves in trouble. And, you know, eventually those people weed themselves out or, or uh, get themselves in legal trouble or something. But we've certainly seen people like that. Hey, do you remember when we were in Boulder? And yeah, yeah that, that, that kid uh, chest checked me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what I thought of when you said that yeah exactly um well hey sully uh the uh the app that, that i'm using only lets me record for our segments do you have uh, a little bit more time to stick around yeah yep okay i have, I have just a couple more quick topics i want to um uh get some information and indulge you with um but i will and i'll wrap up this segment uh, for our listeners and then uh i'll, I'll bring you right back into the podcast all right, all right? awesome All right, we're back with Michael Sullivan for uh, another segment on this podcast. Thanks for joining me again. Um, so I want to switch gears a little bit away from you know what we've been talking about in the first segment and martial arts and warrior culture and things like that um, to shift gears more into uh, a spiritual or ephemeral uh, discussion with you. Um, and I want to I want to just bring up the idea of um, vision quests or walkabouts uh, or rites of passage. Um, that we've found in history among almost every culture. And um, 
in my opinion, I feel like in our culture, a lot of those rites of passage are not available anymore. Um, not emphasized as, as a, as an essential part of a human being's development, but you and I have had our own, um, talks about the importance and, and how we value, um, you know, these ancient rituals of vision quests and things like that, trying to find not only who you are, but how you fit in the world and the larger cosmos. And I just wanted to pick your brain a little bit about where you're sitting with that in your own life. Cause we've, we talked recently about um, planning vision quests out to Moab. Yeah. So, you know, stuff is still, still cooking in the books in this one. Um, I'm really trying to get out with a group of, of men in general um, to do this. I, I feel like we need to get away. The here, here's my perspective on what you're talking about with rites of passage. If, in our culture, if it doesn't make money or if it isn't among absolute norms of spending money, then it is unacceptable. How do you feel about that? Um, yeah, I feel like um, the culture puts a higher value on money than it does on personal growth or personal experience or evolution as a human being, for sure. Or even health, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, don't even bother working out. Go to work. Yeah, and work two jobs and sleep when you're dead. Sleep when you're dead. Um, the uh, so that that's that's a hideous imbalance to me. And so what I'm what I'm making one of the things I'm making right now is a sweat lodge that I can tear down and put back up to take up into the mountains. So. We can do this the hard way, the ceremonial way, cook the rocks outside, bring the rocks in, um, have the conversations, get men to communicate and speak. Man, I don't know where it came from to where we don't think it's okay to talk. It kills us. Yeah. I think, so, uh, yeah, not only the not talking piece, but... Um, physical contact between men. Um, I'm a, I'm a hugger myself and I get a lot of value from, from giving my friends and even, you know, people I just meet a hug or something. I feel like it's a lost, it's a lost connection that, um, men, men especially are, are losing. You know, we don't, we don't embrace each other anymore. We don't, um, you know, it's kind of lost. Yeah. It, it, it's a weird world because we've got this, this one side Puritan, side that's super homophobic and then you've got this other side that is just jumped off the bridge <laughs> we get it <laughs> you're right you're gay um it and there has to be something in the middle that men showing some level of affection and and endearment for one another doesn't mean sexual it it doesn't <laughs> and it somehow came to mean that in this country. If you, if you're anything other than cold, you're gay. Yeah. And that's, that's crazy to me. We're, we're not as, we're not as I, I uh, my daughter um, said something to her husband on the phone. They, they talk to each other in a way that I can't even wrap my head around. Um, they're from the East coast. They, uh, I'm like, be nice to him. He's not as tough as you think he is. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so what do you think are some of the, um, I mean, would you agree with me that you think that, uh, you know, rite of passages in our culture are sort of disappearing? They are. So the only one that's really left is the act of marriage. Yeah. And so, so with rights, sorry, with rites of passage, um, kind of disappearing, what do you think are some of the, um, some of the, the negative side effects that, uh, that could plague, you know, both men and women who should go through rites of passage? Well, first, the only one really being left in our culture being marriage. The problem with that is less people are getting married and more people are getting divorced. So people are realizing that the act of marriage is really irrelevant in their life and they can still be a good parent. And if you go into the court system as a married man, you're losing. So there's the, these acts of the rites of passage. You made it to the next stage. Now you mature. Now you have a family. Now you do this. All that's going to change and it's going to go away. And I actually been studying this a lot lately on these trends. And, and I agree with a lot of the the psychologists that talk about this stuff that that marriage itself seems to be vanishing vanishing because generation the new generations are like i I don't see all my parents are divorced um i don't see i don't see the purpose of it so there what is the next rite of passage then there is none there is none there's actually no death consequence for not doing the rites of passage so there is none they don't make money so there is none yeah, so we have small groups like with you in the martial arts. You walk through belts. Are those rites of passage? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. But every not, match is a rite of passage. Right. But it's not on a societal level, right? This is in, within tribes. Yeah, it's not respected among you know, the general population. Correct. So to you, the belts are rites of passage. Your matches are rites of passage. To me, maybe more striking based, right? It, it, it's all relative, but uh, it's uh, it, it, it's a tough one because, and I think that's what I'm trying to do here, Shane, with this Viking and Bahala movement is create an element for men to go through uh, rites of passage to show that you know how to hew a log into usable timber, that you know how to stack that timber into a cabin, that you know how to turn that cabin into a home, that you know how to defend that home, that you can throw the ax, you can sharpen the ax, man, you could make the ax and you can use the ax to make a bow. And so you can make the bow and then you can use the bow, then you can teach the bow. Now you can hunt for food and you've taught your sons and daughters to hunt for food. These are just ceremonies now. They're not necessary. They're just volunteer ceremonies now. Yeah. Do you feel that's like, my best idea? Do you feel like rites of passage? Because the way you described it, um, those are all uh, skills that someone can develop. You know, building a house, building an axe. You know, learning how to do that, teaching your kids how to do that. Um, all those fall under skill development. Do you feel like rites of passage can transcend even you know skill or survival? Uh, development as well to you know spiritual purposes i don't know we'd all have to agree on that yeah yeah i find that in my own exploration of my own uh, form of spirituality your mind is kind of a uh, an amalgamation of buddhism and amazonian shamanism and 
Native American shamanism and you know, a mixture of uh, Shinto and, you know, um, you know, all ancient Greek archetypes and all these things. Um, so I've had to kind of create my own or find my own ways to engage this rites of passage idea, you know, whether going to um, Native American teepee ceremonies or sweat lodges or meeting with an Amazonian shaman or, um, you know, just going camping by myself for a few days up in the mountains and sitting and meditating and, and connecting with nature, all these things for me, um, is, is my effort to sort of engage the ancient rites of passage and sort of the, the benefits that we can gain from going through these, um, trials and tribulations that we step into voluntarily that I think are missing. Uh, a lot of people these days I feel are trying to avoid challenge or avoid, um, pushing themselves into new, uh, into new realms outside their comfort zone. And they're doing themselves a great disservice and, you know, preventing their own spiritual growth, physical growth, emotional growth, um, growth as a human being, growth as a spiritual being by, by denying this side of our, our self and our culture. I mean, rites of passage happen all over the world um, still, but not so much here in our culture. I, I think a little bit of the problem is, is that the other countries that still have rites of passage are largely less successful than we are. That's true. That's very true. And, and so it's hard to look down on a country and go, all right, what do you got to show me? And uh, most people just aren't going to do that. So I, I think that a lot of the things that you're talking about doing, like camping on your own um, are, long journeys i consider these more of acts of grounding than a rites of passage uh-huh. and because you're grounding yourself with the earth and i don't mean to sound metaphysical but if you take your shoes off and walk in the sand tell me who doesn't love that being yeah. part of the earth and i i think people are ashamed because they don't know how to live on their own planet without stores. I, I think on some subconscious level, they live in shame. So we take our shoes off and we, we get as close as we can to nature, which is usually not more than just going to the beach or on a picnic or, or tailgate camping up in a national park or something. Uh, but in a real serious enduring journey, like, Climbing Mount Rainier, that would be a rites of passage. Not everybody can just wander their ass up there. Sure. People die, right? National Guard units die trying to rescue people up that mountain. So that would be a rites of passage. When somebody tells me, and they have to tell me they weren't dragged up by a Sherpa, that they climbed Everest. I'm like, well, did you get dragged up by the Sherpa that went up there seven times that morning? Or did you do it? I mean, that that's a rite of passage. Very few people are going to do that. Um, I, I think anything that people would look up to and go, wow, man, <laughs> that's amazing, would be the rites of passage. Yeah. And there's some pretty, there's some crazy ones out there that people did. Like, how brave can you be in Africa or a vine around one foot and then jump off a, 
military platform and see how many inches you can get your head from the ground to show everybody how brave you are. And that's, it's not smart. Yeah. One of my favorites is, um, the bullet ant gloves that they, that, uh, I forget which culture does it, but they put all the, the bullet ants, thousands of bullet ants in these little wicker gloves and the, the, the tribesmen have to stick their hands in there and withstand all the, all the agonizing pain. That's one of the, one of the crazier ones that I've heard of. Yeah. This stuff is nonsense. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, I, I've seen these acts of passage in white trash culture sometimes be like, well, can you drink a case of beer in an hour? Oh yeah. Right. And that's, that's silly, Willie, because well, now you're dead or in jail or something. So um, I, I think having a real structure, because this is all going to be tribal. It was all tribal anyways, right, Shane? When you look around, there's not one right to passage. It's all tribal. Right. So that's what it's going to be like for us. We're this massive nation that disagrees on just about everything. Right now, our political parties couldn't agree on the color of shite. And we have, we're, we're saying, how could we can't agree on what a rites of passage is when you have one side saying, well, it's being a man and dressing like a woman and then winning woman of the year. And you have another side saying, well, no, it's swimming across the river. It, you know what I mean? It's like, we're not even on the same base. So I think it has to be broke down to tribal elements. I can't tell you what rites of passage is. I'm just saying this stuff that you told me sounds like grounding. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, what is a rites of passage? What does it mean when you pass this? What's going to change in life? Are you a man now? Are you a woman? I'm sure that having a baby's a rites of passage. Yeah, absolutely. So in my mind, a rites of passage is something that not only you come out of and it, you feel like your life has changed forever, but also that, you know, there's some significant personal growth as a human being or as a man or a woman, there's some, some knowledge brought back from some sort of um, challenge or a struggle. Um, and then the rite of passage also has an element that it needs to be voluntary. It can't be um, necessarily forced. If you're going to get the most benefit, you have to willingly put yourself into, you know, whatever the challenging situation is. Um, knowing that there, there's an element of danger, but then still facing that fear and coming out, uh, having grown as a person. So, yeah. So I, you know, my belief is that still is going to end up being tribal and, and based, uh, because of what people perceive importance to be, um, uh, you know, the rites of passage is, that I don't even have anything to tell my boys that I, cause I, I have two teenage boys and I, I don't even know what to tell them the rites of passage would be. I just, I, I, try, I do my best to teach them how to be good individuals, but I, I don't, yeah, it's, it's, that's such a complex topic. I think Shane, that I don't, I don't have any answers for it. Um, Society is changing so fast that, all I've been able to come up with conceptually is ceremonies uh, for people to go through so they can touch a little bit of history and ground themselves and maybe get a break from the monotonous reality of just living inside of a village your whole life, going store 
to store spending money or making it that and then having that be your whole life yeah what a waste it feels like it yeah so on a you know i i i honor your uh you know, I, I really like that, that you said, you know, you really, you really don't know what that looks like today. Cause it's, it's changing. And that takes, you know, you know, a lot of courage for someone to say, I really don't know. And I appreciate that. But what you brought to the table, as far as your, your opinion on that is very valuable. I think in moving, at least moving the conversation forward so that people would start taking a look at themselves maybe and asking, you know, well, maybe I'm in my twenties or my thirties. Have I even put myself through a rite of passage. Is that maybe what's leaving me unfulfilled in life or feeling like I'm stuck or feeling like, um, I'm not fully an adult yet and I'm in my thirties or something. And hopefully it's going to get people to ask that, that question of themselves at least and explore it. But I want to ask you, you know, um, on a different topic, but also just as large, this, you know, this can be the last thing we talk about, but it's a big topic and one that's really important and near and dear to my heart um, I want to get your perspective. Uh, how would you define or conceptualize um, the idea or the construct of human consciousness? Um, there's lots of different theories out there, and we've gone over, you know, dozens on on the podcast. Uh, but I want to hear, and I think our audience wants to hear, you know, how do you define and how do you conceptualize consciousness and how you engage with it um, to form reality? So. I put some thought into this one over the years. And, and of course, at the end, I have a hypothesis and no evidence. But I have, I have a, a system that I use and that I teach. I, I call it a five-point system. Priorities, values, beliefs, wishes, and urges. And inside of those, and I always make the urge the thumb of the hand when I demonstrate it because it wraps around the rest of the fist and it'll destroy all your priorities, values, beliefs, and wishes. Or turn them into a weapon. The, what I, I guess I, I see happening is you have your reticular activation system inside of the brain that wipes out information as you come across it like how many four tauruses do you see on the way to work or or whatever nonsense information that doesn't need to hit your radar because it's not on your five point system all that opportunity all that reality um all those particles of existence are just shaking past you without you being able to see them it doesn't mean they're not there it, they're there and and you'll you'll know this example from when you buy a new car before you bought the car, you, you probably didn't see that car very many places. But now that you bought the car, you saw six pulling out of the lot or something. It's just there everywhere. The uh, reality to me and the, is, and the perception of reality is, is based upon that, that personal five-point system. And it's largely based upon a cultural system, a cultural five-point system like we have here in America. Um, what do we see in the Middle East? They see God everywhere. Two, two different types of them in India. They see many different types and uh, <clears throat> in, uh, in Asia, they see a different type. And so all these people are seeing these, these different concepts of reality. Now, the only thing that we all have to face are the laws of the universe, like gravity, right? Um, what temperature water freezes, stuff like that. 
And, but for the rest of it, uh, man, it's almost like the matrix. Um, why is it that somebody like myself can struggle with money and yet have every tool necessary to not struggle with money, but struggle with money, (laughs) right? Something got fed into the system a long time ago that is sabotaging. And Uh I, I think that's what people are dealing with is something somewhere in the system, they, they get fed all these points of information. I talked about that when we first started talking that people are age, and then they're in the discovery stage and then they're in the double down stage and then they're in the retirement stage, right? Um, what information got plugged in during that discovery and during that mimic uh, and during that double down to create your average outcome? Why did Bill Gates become so successful and somebody else just as smart with the same opportunities um, retire without a savings? Yeah, I, I talked to some people about this and I use a general term diet to describe um, part of this too, that, you know, our diet isn't just what we, what food we intake, but also what information we intake, um, auditory, auditory information, what music we listen to, what uh, images we choose to feed ourselves with, you know, what news stations we choose to watch. All of this is part of our diet and it is affecting, you know, how we will perceive the world. It's forming thought patterns, it's forming associations, all sorts of stuff. Like you mentioned, you know, in every given second of human experience, we're being, all of our senses are picking up about 80,000 bits of information. Um, But our brain has this amazing ability to filter out what is not necessary, like you said, for those those five points. Um, And we're only able to process about 80 bits per second. So we're, we're losing mass, mass majority of the information coming in because our brain tells us it's irrelevant. Like you said, that doesn't mean it's not there or not real. Um, you know, I'm a believer that, that we live within um, multi-layered dimensionalities and there's, there's other beings and other entities and, and other parallel and alternate realities happening simultaneously in the same space that we're inhabiting. But our brain has learned to tune those, um, the perceptions of those realms or those worlds out so that we can function more readily in our, in our own 3d layer of that, of that dimensionality. Does that make sense? It does. Um, what you're, what you're saying, I, I've had, I, I, I had this conversation the other night because somebody was talking religion with me and I, I have this kind of set rule that I, there's three points of life to me. Um, I break it down in the known, the unknown, and the unknowable. And I don't mess with the unknowable. Like, what do you think God meant? And I'm like, I don't want to talk about it because I don't know anything about that. But I do know this for a fact that you can't show me somebody that has joined a religion they disagree with. Yeah, they may disagree afterwards after they join the religion, but they don't they don't walk in, they don't walk through the doors and and commit to it if they don't believe in it. Correct. So there's nobody committed to religion trying to tell me something about religion, for example, that they don't agree with. 
they were always going to agree with it because that's what works for their brain patterns. And that's why there's so many different religions. But that's why there's so many different results in life. Because there's that many different interpretations over the same damn book. And we just can't perceive everything the same way on this conceptual base of what is reality. Because I think that's what you're asking me. Is that, am I right? Um, well, I mean, that might be, that's unknowable for now. You know, what is reality? Well, I guess, you know, it could be knowable through experience, but it's unknowable through scientific inquiry at this moment until technology can can uh, catch up and, and maybe measure consciousness in some way. Um, but yeah, you know, the nature of reality, I think, is an ultimate truth. It's just a matter of, you know, how deep has the individual gone into exploring what the nature of reality is, how their um, perception of reality fits with that or doesn't fit with that or doesn't include a lot of aspects of the ultimate truth that maybe they have just been ignorant to or or chosen to ignore um i feel like everybody's trying to get at the same thing underneath all these religions um they're just going about it different ways and that's perfectly fine that's perfectly okay um but it's important to know that we're all trying to understand you know what what we're doing here and you know why we're here in the first place and how do we engage with um, our own minds and the minds of other people so that we can leave more of a positive impact and give more to our, our species with our short time on earth than we take away from our species. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I agree. I mean, leaving as much good as you can before you go. I just, I think the other, I, I don't know if I'm smart enough to talk about the other, about this topic in depth because it's it's literally just opinion to me and uh i i you know i don't even jump on the religion topic it, it because it, it mixes into this for me um it, because people think that god for example is the reason we're in our reality and and i and i used to try to break that bubble and i don't know why i did that and i don't do it anymore because in my mind, I started thinking, like, what if the only reason that this person isn't a murderer or something is because he or she thinks that there's a creature in the sky that's watching them? It's a good point. And so I just started leaving it alone and uh, just trying to figure out, I'm like, it, it isn't any of my business to correct you into my way of thinking because it's not even the right way of thinking. It's just correct into my way of thinking it's it's none of my business to do that if if that's your belief as long as you're not hurting anybody i more power to you um i uh i really believe in the do no harm thing so i mean it just kind of stops right there for me a lot of the stuff is just so far out of my pay grade and the older i get the more i realize that that i i just don't know i mean these every, there's so much theory and I myself, Shane, have struggled in, in the most basic elements of life. And uh, I'm not very good at a lot of things. You know, I'm, I'm okay at some things. And, and to deepen that puddle 
or make it any muckier for a brain like mine is is scary you know i there's there's people like me out there that are that are just trying to get through life and 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 that and it doesn't come very simple there's there's a struggle with relationships there's a there's a struggle with uh um, numbers there's there's a struggle with motivation or even wondering why why am i here does it even matter if i'm here and um so for me i mean this this question's insanely thick and and i just i just don't have a lot of uh a lot of wisdom to spread around it i don't think again you know i respect that you're you're aware of your own limitations in that area that that shows a lot of character um so I mean, we're nearing the end of our time together and I want to, I want to thank you again for coming on the podcast and sharing all that you did share with, with the audience. I think that it's super valuable and uh, I know I've learned a ton from you over the years and I hope to continue to learn a lot from you. Uh, like I said, you've been um, a very powerful um, male figure in my life and a, and a male role model um, when, you know, I had a vacuum in my life in that area. And I want to thank you again for that. It's meant a lot to me and thank you for marrying uh, my wife and I together. That means a lot to us as well. Uh, do you want to um, give a shout out or, or uh, let the audience know, you know, where your gym is and how they can find you and how they can find your uh, woodworking business. If you have a website. Sure. Um, VIV woodworks. Um is the name of my business. And so um, I can be looked up underneath Viking and Valhalla. Um, if you can find me through my personal name, Michael Sullivan on Facebook. And the gym itself is Fusebox Samba 1 now. And we, we don't do a, a ton with MMA, but we do a little bit. It's, it's Samba now. So Fusebox Samba 1, Westminster, Colorado. Um, we are um, a non-official sister gym uh, to, or at least a cousin gym to Z's out of Fort Collins. And um, we work tightly with uh, Iron Forge Martial Arts out of Colorado Springs with their Kudo Karate program. The, uh, that, you know, that's, that's basically it. The, the woodworking stuff, guys, is just... Uh, it's Viking and Valhalla, and it's that that means more than just woodworking um, in the future. But for right now, Viking Valhalla Woodworks and uh, doors, windows, furniture. If you're interested in something that is handmade and handcrafted from wood that could possibly be from here in Colorado, at least in the United States, if you're looking for hardwood uh, and that has some spirit in it and some soul and some character, then I'm one of the last standouts in this this type of industry and we'll be doing this until I do a almost complete transition into log home building in the next uh, year or two. Nice. And don't you have a, a podcast called Viking and Valhalla too? We do. So I, I, unlike you, I wasn't real disciplined and carry through with that. Um, I need to get back onto the podcast idea and, and of course, mine doesn't. I mean, the question that you just asked me just tripped me up. I'm not going that deep into things. Um, this is this is really Viking-based ceremony, Viking-based 
ideas, ideology, Indo-European. And some people feel like that has some kind of racist connotation to it now, but it, it doesn't. I, I have a lot of black guys that are in this and they're like, I feel as Viking as the next guy. And I'm like, great, man. You probably are. I, it's it's a spirit thing. It's not a blood thing to me. So we're looking at giving men an opportunity to get out to some of the ancient tasks, the ancient ceremonies, and to feel connected to something other than materialism. I think okay. that's that that sums it maybe for me right there. Very nice. Yeah, we need more more things like that available, more opportunities. Again, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. And I want to uh, remind our listeners that we are sponsored by my private practice counseling and consulting firm. If if you want to reach out to us, find us at mindops.com. That's M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S.com. That's where you can leave questions, questions and comments for myself or my guests as well. Please check us out on the website. Um, and all, as always, please like and share the podcast. And if you feel obligated and you like the content, please feel free to donate to the podcast. There should be a link uh, at the bottom of whatever podcast app you're listening to us on. So click that link. Um, every dollar counts. And like I said, when we reach episode number 40, we'll upgrade our systems to get this message out so we're no longer recording on our phone. Um, and we will get a better message out to you guys. So thanks again, Sully, for joining me and um, hope to have you on in future podcasts. Appreciate you guys. Love you. Bye. Bye.